0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4. When I was in seminary, our president would preach often in chapel, but of course there were guest speakers in between. And uh, as he would give kind of the layout for the week, he would talk about the guest who had been there. and, uh, And then when it was time to get back to business as usual, he would say, well, you're back to beans and cornbread. And I realize you haven't had a different speaker, but we've had different books besides Ezra and Nehemiah. But today it's back to beans and cornbread. We're back in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4, right where we left off several weeks ago. And I want to read to you a verse of that song that the choir just sang, just in case you didn't quite catch it the first time. Verse 2 said, The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my sign the Savior He will stay. I labor on. In weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. As we come to Nehemiah 4 this morning, we come to a text filled with weak and feeble people. And if it were not for their shepherd intervening, they would not overcome, but rather they would be overcome by the enemy. So even as we look to the Old Testament, we look uh, to God's Word to see how we're to take strength from Christ, for He is the one who overcomes. Just by way of reminder of where we are in the book of Nehemiah, I know it's been a few weeks and so we've all, let's be honest, we've all forgotten what was going on in the book of Nehemiah. So in chapters 1 and 2, you remember we met this man, Nehemiah, and he's coming back. It's been several generations that we've been watching God's people back in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is uh, their leader, and he specifically is helping lead them to rebuild the walls around the city because the walls represent security and safety and the safe worship of God there in his city of Jerusalem, and if you remember chapter three, it was one of those chapters we were tempted to rush through, but we slowed down a little bit. We saw all those names that were mentioned there—names of people who were working to complete the wall. And you remember there wasn't a bricklayer in sight. There was people with ordinary jobs that who didn't normally have anything to do with building a wall. You had the uh, the goldsmith and the perfumers and the merchants, and they were all working to complete the wall. And when we finished chapter 3, it kind of gave us this overview as if everything was done. The work was complete. It's good news. Everything's great. But that's the foreshadowing. But chapters 4 through 6 actually tell us about that process of what it looked like as the wall was being built. And there was opposition to the wall being built as we're going to see today. So, so far, the walls of Jericho should be marked with this sign. I said Jericho. It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. I even had that in my notes. It's Jerusalem. That's the city. Y'all know where we are. The walls of Jerusalem are marked with the sign of pardon our progress. And things look so well in chapter 3, but there's actually opposition as we see here in chapter 4, which ought to give us greater appreciation for these ordinary people like goldsmiths and perfumers and merchants who persevered in the face of opposition. In fact, we ought never to be surprised as Christians when we face opposition in this life. Someone has said that God has had only one son without sin, but never a son without a trial. Think about that. Our Lord is the only one who ran the race here on earth without ever sinning. But even our Lord endured suffering. Our Lord faced many trials, and he told us that we should expect the same. And so we see that on full display here in Nehemiah chapter 4. So if you found your place in God's Word, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Our king speaks to us through Nehemiah 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox gets up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall." And all the walls joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and day. In Judah, it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, We all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God, this very word of God stands forever. You may be seated as I pray. Our most gracious heavenly Lord, we have heard your word. Now would you help us to understand your word. Help us to understand what this meant 2,500 years ago. And help us understand how it applies to us today. May we not leave here thinking that this applies to some other people without first understanding how it applies to ourselves. May we submit ourselves to your word. For our good and for your glory we pray. Amen. G.K. Chesterton once said that the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and it also tells us to love our enemies. Perhaps the reason for that is that they're generally the same people. That'll hit you later. That was certainly true for Nehemiah as he came back to Jerusalem. The neighbors around the city are the enemies of the city. And we've already met this man, Sanballat and Tobiah, back in chapter 2. Pastor Laramie preached chapters 1 and 2, and you may remember this guy. He's a Samaritan. That's where we would know the land. It talks about him being uh, a Horonite. That's the city he's from, Horon, there above Jerusalem. But that's what we would call Samaria. So you think about the Samaritans in the New, New Testament. That's where this guy was from. And so he's an enemy of Jerusalem. And you may remember back in chapter 2 that he didn't like it one bit when Nehemiah showed up in town. Chapter 2, verse 10 said, It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And later in that same chapter, it said that after the people uh, had declared, Let us rise and build, they jeered at us and despised us, and even accused Nehemiah and the others of rebelling Against the king. So, right out of the gate in chapter 4, we understand that there's opposition to the work of God. It begins with what we might just call taunting. Taunting here in verses 1 through 3. This taunting uh, actually does make a difference. Sometimes we think, oh, what is it we say? Sticks and stones may break our bones, but words can never hurt me. Y'all understand that's foolishness, right? Words really do hurt. Words really do matter. And this may just seem simple enough. It begins with taunting and jeering. But clearly this man, Sanballat, he is angry. He's not just a little bit angry. It says in verse 1 that he was angry and greatly enraged. He's piling up his anger. He was mad enough just when Nehemiah showed up in town and said, we're going to start rebuilding the wall. But now that the, wall has actu- the work on the wall has actually begun, he's angry, he's greatly enraged, and he is jeering, he is taunting, he's ridiculing the people. And you understand that the reason people ridicule that sort of work that they oppose, aside from the fact that it's really easy to do, is that it's often effective We often get demoralized when someone uh, comes to us and taunts us and jeers at us and says, I can't believe you Christians are doing those sorts of things. How foolish can you be? It's effective because taunting and jeering often gets right at that point of insecurity that we have hidden just below the surface. Well, Sanballat, he's taunting, he's ridiculing, but he's not doing just that. Did you notice in chapter 2, he's parading an army of soldiers by. He's trying to intimidate them. Look, you people get out of line, and this is the army that's going to come crashing down upon you. And oh, by the way, we've got another statesman here, Tobiah the Ammonite. He's here, and they begin asking all of these rhetorical questions, these questions that don't actually deserve an answer, but they're really seeking to taunt the people of Israel. You notice those questions there in verse 2. He begins to ask, what are these feeble Jews doing? They're feeble. They're withered and miserable, so says Sanballat. They're like fading flowers dying on the vine. And then he asks, will they restore it for themselves? He's trying to help them see and feel just how alone they are. You remember an army escorted Nehemiah back to Jerusalem, but that army's gone. It's not mentioned in the text anymore. And even though Nehemiah came with the favor and the blessing of the king, the king's a 1,000 miles away in his palace. He's not here to help Nehemiah. And so they're taunting and helping them to see, you're all alone. How are you going to build this wall? They continue taunting. They say, will they sacrifice? They're essentially saying, are you just going to pray that wall up? Do you think you can just be so spiritual? Your only hope is prayer. You can't rebuild that wall. Will they finish up in a day? You've bitten off more than you can chew. This is a lot of work for you people to do there in Jerusalem, and you're not going to get it done. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that now, at this point, they're kind of overplaying their hand because while the wall has been destroyed, the, the gates are burned, but the wall has not been burned. It's just in disrepair. It needs to be repaired. And so Nehemiah is seeking to do that, but he's facing opposition. The people are jeering and taunting at them. But then Tobiah, uh, the sidekick that we see with Sanballat so many times here in the book, he's not going to be left out. He joins in and says, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now think about that. You don't have to be an expert on foxes to understand. A stone wall ought to be big and strong and hard to knock over. And if a little light-footed fox can knock it over, then it's not very much of a wall. And that's what he's trying to say. He's trying to get them to doubt everything that they're doing. You can't accomplish this work that you're trying to do. There's actually some truth in what is being said. Because apart from the hand of God, they are weak and feeble. They're alone and they're isolated. And so they need the hand of God, just as we do. God's people often face taunting, even in this day. We face opposition. We face ridicule. The naysayers whisper, the decline is too great. That church will never grow. The problem is too big. God's ways won't work. We often feel feeble. Till reminded by God's word that it's just at that moment that God begins to work. If you're going along in our uh, Bible reading plan as a church, and if you've already done your reading for the day, you were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, be reminded of this passage from 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Listen, when you're feeling feeble and your faith is fading, lift your eyes to the hills. Look to the heavens and commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. We see this taunting here in the first three verses, and so we may understand that. We may sympathize with that, and we wonder, how are we supposed to respond? What is Nehemiah going to do? Well, let's look in verses 4 through 6 and see the treatment for taunting. Notice that Nehemiah doesn't retaliate. He prays. He prays. It it shifts so dramatically there. By the way, you can tell this is written in the first person. This is Nehemiah's journal, as it were. He's given us the record of what happened, and he tells us the taunting, and he just immediately goes into a prayer. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out From your sight. You may hear that and you think, oh my goodness, Nehemiah's a little strong. He's been a little bit vindictive. I mean, that's a little bit harsh. He's asking God not to forgive their sins, not to overlook what they're doing. I thought we were supposed to pray that, that God would forgive everybody's sins. That's not what Nehemiah is doing. But look at the rest of the prayer. He says, For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. You see Sanballat thinks that he's angry, but his anger is angering God. Sanballat isn't merely taunting the builders, he's taunting God. He's not just ridiculing the workers, he is scorning the savior. And Nehemiah prays that God would judge their blasphemous barbs and put an end to their opposition. He says, "Turn back their taunts on their own heads." Many times in Scripture, we see God's people cry out to God, begging that He would vindicate not just themselves, but the glory of His own name, that God would defend Himself, that God would carry out His promises, that He would defend and vindicate His glory and His name. Because we understand God will not let sin go unpunished, and it's not wrong for God's people to pray that God's judgment would be just and sure. In fact, we have lots of examples of this, these types of prayers in the Bible. Often in the Psalms, you get to some of those hard Psalms, the ones that people never want to read out loud in church that, that say really strange things, and you think, my goodness, I didn't know Christians spoke like that. Those are called the imprecatory Psalms. It's where we're praying that God would carry out his judgment, that God would do what he said he was going to do. And in fact, when we pray these prayers, just like Nehemiah, just like the psalmist, it's shaping us, informing us. Think about that. When you see evil in the world, what is your first response? Is your response praying that God would bring judgment, that he would put an end to the wickedness and the evil that we see? Or is our first response to begin think about which politician could fix the problem, which person caused the problem? We turn all sorts of directions, but do we stop and pray that God would actually put an end to the evil and the wickedness that we see? That's what Nehemiah is doing. It's not about himself. He's not saying, God, they've made me mad, and I want you to strike them down. He's saying, God, would you defend the glory of your name? Don't cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. When we pray like this, we're acknowledging that God really is in control, that He really is sovereign over all. But we have to ask the question, is that all He does? Does He merely pray, pray and nothing else? Not at all. Look at verse 6. We saw verse 6 when we were looking at chapter 3 it's kind of an overview of that chapter. Verse 6 says, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind To work. They prayed, and they worked. They kept going right along with God's plan. They kept doing exactly what God had told them to do. Nehemiah prayed first. He prayed often, but then they got to work. Oliver Cromwell, the famous uh, British general, uh, he told his army to trust in God and keep your gunpowder dry. It's not an either or. You do both. You trust God and you keep your hand to the plow. You keep doing the work God has called you to do. Perhaps you're more familiar uh, with a song that I believe was made famous in World War II called Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition. Do both. You pray to God and you keep your hand to the plow, doing what God has told you to do. And when you see this in verse 6, we've seen all this taunting, all this jeering, all the questions that they have posed at Nehemiah and the builders, and then they just keep right on working. It kind of makes Sanballat and Tobiah look small. That's the best you guys could do. You threw out some, some jeers, some taunts, but it didn't slow them down one bit. Well, that means it's time to escalate. The taunting wasn't enough, so now you see the taunting turns to threats. Look at verses 7 and 8. You see these different people mentioned here again. What you may not realize in verse 7 there, you see those names, that represents enemies on every side. Jerusalem is surrounded north, south, east, and west. All of these locations surround the city of Jerusalem. God's people are facing insurmountable opposition, just like we see so many times in Scripture God's people are outnumbered, they're desperate, they think, what are we going to do? And it's moments just like that that God begins to work and demonstrate that His plans are higher than anyone else's plans. His plans will be brought to pass. They will see completion. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. You have a play on words here in the Hebrew because in verse 6 it talks about the wall being joined together. But as the wall is joined together, then the people plot together. They say, we don't like this wall being joined together, and so we're going to plot together against you. We're going to seek to figure out a way to cause confusion, to come and fight against Jerusalem. That's their desire. It reminds me of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot And plan and scheme in vain. What does Psalm 2 remind us? That he who sits in the heavens laughs. God's plans will not be set aside, God's plans will not be overcome. The people rage and the people plot and the people plan, but we cannot defy the will of our God. How do they respond? Look at verse 9. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Once again we see both sides of that coin a faith and action. They prayed and they set a guard. And Verse 9 really gives you the overview of what's coming. You heard me read the rest of the chapter earlier. We get more information about setting a guard, but the emphasis here is that they prayed and kept working. Look at verse 10 and following. We notice that discouragement is about to spread among the people. Warren Wearsby noted that pressures from without often create problems from within. Discouragement is dispersing. And the people have listened to the taunts and they've actually begun to believe them. You know, that is possible. You can listen to the lies of the enemy so often that you start to believe that what they're saying is actually true. You hear enough people scoff at the church and scoff at the work of God, and you start to wonder, is it really possible? Is God really going to do what He promised to do? And notice there at the beginning of verse 10 where this discouragement is coming from? Judah, the tribe of Judah. Does that surprise you? That's David's tribe. That's the tribe Jesus will come from. What is going on in Judah that they would be the ones who would cave to the pressure and begin to disperse this discouragement? As we go on, we're going to see in chapter 6 that there's actually some political espionage going on behind the scenes. There are some traitors in the tribe of Judah who are selling out their people and spreading these lies. But for now, in chapter 4, we see what they're saying. Look at verse 10. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. You hear the people. They're fatigued. They're saying everybody's worn out. The destruction is too big. The cleanup is too much. We can't do it, Nehemiah. We can't. Verse 11, they're not only fatigued, they're also fearful because it seems the people have threatened to attack them at night and kill them, and so they're, they're whispering about the word of the enemies. They won't know. They won't see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And we have to wonder, would it actually have turned to bloodshed? Would Sanballat and Tobiah have actually come in and killed some of the builders just because they didn't like it? We don't know because God intervenes before it comes to that. We've seen verse 10, they're fatigued. Verse 11, they're fearful. But verse 12, it seems that families are coming in from the farms begging them to come back home. Time after time, even 10 times, they're saying, You must return to us. Can you imagine being Nehemiah in these circumstances? Can you imagine trying to lead a group of people in a situation like this? The enemy's plan seems to be working. Nehemiah knows God's plan. God has sent him back to lead the rebuilding. The people of God have said that we will rise and build, but now they're filled with fear. Do you remember all the way back in Ezra 4 when we saw something very similar to this? We saw a foreshadowing of this very situation. What happened in Ezra 4 when the people were filled with fear? They stopped working. Not just for a day, not just for a week, but for 20 years they stopped working. Do you remember that? God sent his prophets to stir them up because they had stopped working for two decades. So now we wonder are they going to stop again? Not on Nehemiah's watch. Look at verse 13. He starts stationing people there by their families. He takes actions. The alarms are sounding, everyone's on high alert. He groups everyone together by their families, and he stations them with their weapons on guard. Remember back in chapter 3, some of the people built by families. Families built sections of the wall. And now in chapter 4, families are guarding their section of the wall. So Nehemiah gets everyone in place. But then you look at verse 14, and you have three crisp actions. Very quickly he acts. Verse 14, he says, "...and I looked." and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah makes a plan just as we've seen him do. But he places his plan in the hand of God, the great and awesome God who clears away nations, who destroys enemies. Nehemiah says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Yes, they are fatigued and fearful, but they are fixing their eyes on their Lord. They say, we will fight. We will stand our ground. You come to verse 15, and it makes all the difference in this narrative. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. We all returned to the wall, each to his work. Now look, Nehemiah doesn't take credit. He doesn't say, I'm such a great leader that these people have heard about us and they decided they're not going to mess with us. No, Nehemiah has organized the people. He's stationed them along the wall, but he knows that ultimately God is the one who's done this. God has frustrated their plan. Nehemiah and the exiles have found out about it and so they're they're prepared. The element of surprise is gone, but ultimately God is the one who frustrated their plan. Again, back in Ezra chapter 4 when we got the preview of this opposition, the enemy bribed leaders in order to frustrate the work of the exiles. That same word was used. Back in chapter 4, we want to frustrate the work of God's people, but now in Nehemiah 4, God is frustrating the work of all who would oppose his people. You understand that the Jews, they're they're gathered. They might look a little bit like the Minutemen did at Concord and Lexington, but it's not the might of the exiles. It's not the strength of their army that stalls off a battle. It's the mighty hand of God. Listen to Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plan of His heart to all generations. God frustrates the work of the enemy, and He establishes the work of the exiles. And from that day on, half of the people are standing guard, and half of the people are working and building They can't wait and stop every time they hear a rumor of attack, so they're on guard at all times. You look at verses uh, 17b, look in the middle of verse 17, it says, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand, and he held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders, verse 18, had his sword strapped at his side while he built. They're ready to work, they're ready for battle, whichever comes their way. You notice, as we kept reading earlier, that they established this communication system based on the trumpet, the same way that armies have functioned for generations. If you hear the sound of the trumpet, you know the enemy is going to attack. Man your stations. And even as the chapter concludes, you understand that they are committed to working very hard. They're working long days. Verse 21, it says uh, that they, uh, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn, Until the stars came out. That's a long work day. And Nehemiah is telling everybody, stay in the city. Don't go home at night to your farms and fields. Stay inside so that you can be here to protect us. You can be part of the battle plan. So much so, you notice in verse 23, it says they didn't even put their pajamas on. They stayed in their work clothes all day. When they laid down at night, they kept their clothes on. It says, uh, none of us took off our clothes. We kept our weapon at our right hand. They were ready for battle no matter when it might come. The work is opposed, but the work goes on. Now we know the end of the story. Remember chapter 3 told us the wall is going to be built. The wall is going to be completed. But the opposition never really goes away. The opposition doesn't go away for the Jewish people. It continues until this day. The opposition has not gone away for the church. And Jesus told us that it would be so. He warned us in John 15 that if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Jesus has told us to not be surprised when we face opposition. And we're to be familiar with the devices of Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says we are not ignorant of his devices. We know the schemes of Satan. We know how he works. Think about the schemes of Satan here in Nehemiah 4. Taunting and threats and threats and fear and discouragement. Have you faced any of these threats before? These are not unfamiliar schemes. The enemy uses those tactics today just like he did 2,500 years ago. Is our response supposed to be any different from Nehemiah and the people? They prayed and they worked. They trusted God and they kept working. Second Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5 are helpful for us as New Testament Christians. For Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, the enemy's tactics may look the same today, but we must remember that we are not waging war according to the flesh we don't necessarily need to be standing guard with a weapon at all times. Instead, we are told to be on guard. Jesus emphasized that three times in Mark 13. Be on guard, be on guard, be on guard. Mark 14, the night before his crucifixion, he told his disciples to watch and pray. You understand that prayer is a vitally important weapon of our warfare. Corrie ten Boom, the famous Nazi survivor, said, Is, your, is prayer your steering wheel? or your spare tire. That's a helpful way of thinking about it. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Far too often it's the donut that we don't look at, but once about every 5 years. Prayer ought to be what's steering and guiding us. All throughout this chapter we've seen this balance of trusting in God but also working. And I understand that can be hard to wrap our mind around. How are we to work through this balance? One commentator put it this way. Christians do not need to prove that they are trusting God by doing nothing to help themselves. That smacks of fanaticism, not faith. It's hard to strike a balance. We are to work, but we're not to put our trust in our work. We're to pray, but we're not to let our prayers become an excuse for doing nothing ourselves. It requires the Spirit of God to be a person to achieve this balance. Do you have the Spirit of God? You understand every person who's called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You've permanently been indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit since the moment the Lord saved you. Are you in Christ today? If not, then you need to understand that based on the authority of God's Word, I can say to you, God will bring all of your plans to nothing. You may think that you have great plans for your life. You may think you've got it figured out of how to save yourself. You may think that everything in life is just fine. But apart from Christ, your plans will come to nothing. Repent and believe the gospel today. I would love nothing more than after this service to spend time with you, speaking with you about the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Dear saints, I leave you with this one final passage from Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. let's pray our mighty fortress to you alone we pray to you alone we turn and trust for you are our strength our never failing bulwark thank you for teaching us your will through your word Christ Jesus our world is full of devils who taunt and ridicule us who cause us to fear and tremble Strengthen our spirits today, we pray. Fortify our resolve. Give us backbones of steel, because you tell us in your word that you will accomplish your plan, no matter how hard the nations rage, no matter how diligently the people plot and plan, they plan in vain, for you are busy accomplishing your plans according to your purposes. May we resist opposition with the weapons of warfare that you have given us, May we walk in the Spirit. May we put on the full armor of God. May we pray fervently and work diligently according to the power within us given by your Spirit and according to the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We all must respond to God's Word, and I pray that your response is looking to our Savior as our rock and our fortress. Would you stand as we sing?